Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very quiet Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Gabriel Demacker. Gabriel is a director at Rising Stars Nursery and Daycare based in London. Uh, Gabriel, welcome. It's great to have you with us on the programme today. Thank you, Scott. It's wonderful to have you. Now, this podcast, first and foremost, is all about leadership and effective leadership at that. But what does that word leader actually mean to you? Well, Scott, thank you for the question. Uh, please permit me to first uh, seize this opportunity to thank those who are putting their lives at risk, helping us at this challenging time, as well as our parents who are doing a great job by engaging our children at this time also. And lastly, our thoughts and prayers are to those who are currently infected by this virus and those that have lost their dearly beloved ones to this pandemic. And then back to your question. Um, once the word leadership is mentioned, what comes to mind immediately to me is providing direction and exercising influence. And there can't be a better time for this uh, topic than now, that the country and indeed the whole world is faced with uh, uh, a pandemic. Yes, absolutely. Um, effective leadership is coming under scrutiny uh, no more so than it is now with the uh, the pandemic and uh, the uh, the fallout of that. And we have seen some very contrasting approaches to that, haven't we? We've seen the likes of Giuseppe Conte in Italy and Xi Jinping in China really being proactive in locking their countries down quite quickly. Whereas here in the UK, more stringent measures, albeit, have come into place recently, but we were taking a very much less hands-on approach in the run-up to that. Um, tell me, if we take that away from politics for a moment and away from times of crisis, as a leader, Gabriel, which approach do you generally prefer to take when you're dealing with difficulties? Would you rather dive straight in and get on top of the situation as soon as possible, take a proactive approach, or would you sit back, tend to let things play out a bit, see how matters develop, and then take action from there and be more reactive? I think... I must, at this point, uh, acknowledge uh, the leadership in this country. Uh, I am really very proud because um, what we have done is uh, not jump in and, and uh, you know, just but to analyze, which is the second option, look at where things are and then take appropriate action. And I think if you listen to the news, um, monitor what is happening, you will be proud of the leadership uh, which we have in this country across board, you know, in the hospitals, in, you know, in the parliament and everywhere. So we are engaging, uh, seriously analyzing situations, checking, you know, against other countries and monitoring where things are and then putting things in place to ensure that uh, the citizens of this country are safe. So I, I, I am I'm happy with the second option you gave, which is the, uh, what we're doing in this country, and I'm very glad that the leadership is doing what I would have been my uh, choice if uh, if if I was far, if I'm in that position. And do you think that leadership is as celebrated as much as it should be in the UK? Because the likes of Boris Johnson have faced a great deal of criticism as well for the approach that they've taken. Um, to be honest with you. <laughs> One of the one of the qualities of a good leader is to be able to take criticisms like that, and I think the, 
in, in Britain, you know, we should be proud of ourselves because that criticism is, again, the thing that makes whoever finds himself in a place of authority to, you know, know that, you know, you have really, really to do what you have to do to ensure that you're getting the best. So the, the criticism is there and it helps. That is the only thing that helps a leader to sit up and ensure that they are doing the right thing. So uh, again, I I appreciate what the leadership in this country is doing across board, not just the prime minister, but everyone. People are doing what they have to do. And then those criticisms are a checklist, you know, because if you're not listening to anyone, then that's where you're likely to run into error. So the criticism is fine, and, and that's uh, one of the checks and balances in leadership. It is, um, absolutely. And um, if we look at um, your um, sort of um, journey into a leadership now, uh, Gabriel, did you always imagine that you would be in a position of leadership uh, yourself as well and taking on responsibilities such as that, but on a much sort of smaller level, would you say? Yes, yes. And um, it, it's, uh, it's great because when, when we talk of leadership, most people will think of people like uh, the prime minister or indeed people who are high up. But mm. leadership for me, it uh, cuts across everywhere that anyone is. And that's why in early years, we our priority is to ensure that we give children the, the foundation that they need to fill the vicissitudes of life. Because whether it's in the family, whether it's a dad who is taking decision, whether it's a, mom, a single mom who is taking decision for the children, whether it's in the in the place of work, anywhere, any place where you are providing direction and exercising influence over people, these these are the core areas and these are strong areas and these have far-reaching consequences. You know, if things are not done right, and that's why in early years, especially also in this country, we pay a lot of uh, uh, guided. Again, by the statutory framework for the early years foundation stage, you know, which sets the standards of learning, uh, standards for learning, development, and care for children. You know, in that way, we do what we have to do. You know, uh, our approach may be democratic, but then when it comes to statutory matters, we have to put our feet down as leaders to say, listen, there's no compromising on this issue about our safeguarding for our children, you have to do what you have to do. Again, that's a, 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 a sorry, um, let me just make this point. When you, when, when you listen to the Prime Minister, for example, when it comes to people having to stay at home, there's no room for the, uh, the negotiations in this area because that's where you, you see a, a leader sounding autocratic. But when situations demand for action, you have to tell people to stay at home and you don't need to negotiate it. Yes, there are provisions that you will make, but people have to understand what we, you, they have to do. And this is exactly what we do in early years when it comes to safeguarding welfare of the children and their statutory requirements that we are supposed to follow. Yes, um, absolutely. And uh, you talk about, of course, leadership in the early years setting uh, quite a bit there. When we think of leaders, instantly we think of people who are in the public eye, don't we? We think of prime ministers, we think of politicians, we think of celebrities, sports personalities. So quite often in like education context, in business context, good leaders quite often can go under the radar, can't they? Yes, yes. 
Yes, uh, that, that's uh, that's um, uh, that's a uh, cry. I think that's one of the points I tried to make earlier. And um, one of the, you know, about I keep um, uh, narrowing it uh, to the sector where I am. In early years, we we ensure that we are imbibing in the children, creating those, creating that foundation that people need you know, in life, in their later lives. And that's why, as I said earlier, leadership is across board, from the family to that manager in the office to anyone across across board that is taking decisions. And, um, and uh, as you rightly said, people will always focus on the, um, on the, uh, on the big ones, which are seen there, the prime minister and indeed people who are at the top. But uh, quite a good number of people uh, find themselves in situations and uh, positions where they take uh, um, valid and uh, far-reaching uh, decisions that um, have great effect uh, in, across the country. For sure. Now, um, if we think about um, your own leadership style uh, for a moment now, uh, Gabriel, um, would you say there have been any experiences or any individuals that have had an influence on that? Um, the uh, I personally, in the in the in, in our business, um, the approach which is I'm very comfortable with is the. Uh, uh, democratic uh, approach, uh, which some people can uh, refer to as distributed. And then uh, what that means is that we tend to, you know, give our practitioners opportunity to take ownership of the vision and the, the, uh, of, uh, of the, uh, that has been cast uh, uh, to them and uh, take ownership of their own practice too. So in doing that, they, the policies are there for them to follow. And we don't just uh, stand behind them and uh, stand over them and say, you know, do this, this, do this, this. But as a team, they collectively know what to do and do what they have to do to ensure that things are done properly. That that statutory framework which we work with is being followed. And then where, where what happens is as a leader, you are casting an eye on what they do and ensuring that, you know, standards are not compromised whether it's in safeguarding, welfare of the children, or indeed any other. So as a leader, you keep an eye, you keep a tab on what is happening, but at the same time, you are giving practitioners opportunity to be able to, you know, um, um, do the day-to-day things that they have to do. And also in our own case also, the, uh, uh, the, the, the parents are uh, uh, another public we have to um, uh, work with, so it's the children, the parents, and us, and indeed all the other agencies that we work with. So it's quite um, a challenging area, but um, and uh, it really tests your leadership skills to stretch it, you know, very well. And um, I'm enjoying it. That's uh, fantastic to hear. Now, um, I am conscious of uh, running out of time, uh, Gabriel, but before I um, do um, wrap things up, um, give me an idea of what you imagine the next year is going to hold for yourself and for Rising Stars and what you hope to achieve in that time, especially beyond the outbreak of COVID-19. Oh, thank you. The, the Prior to this time, we had uh, set up an agenda for ourselves uh, recently in uh, 
in February, we launched a scholarship scheme because we want to roll out scholarship to uh, parents who, you know, have uh, different situations in their lives and then the children, because for us it's the children first. We want to look at opportunities where we are giving children opportunities to access early years education. And in addition to what the government is doing in terms of the funded hours they have of our children, we are looking, we have um, we launched the, the scholarship scheme, the two MPs in the boroughs where we, uh, the borough where we, uh, we are situated, they all attended and launched it. And uh, what is happening now is that we are working with early years to be able to roll out the scholarship scheme in the way that will afford parents, you know, some single parents, some people who have financial uh, challenges, or indeed, you know, children with the families that have children with special education need. We want to be able to impact the society where we are. And it's exciting for us because in the next 12 months, beyond this uh, uh, um, pandemic, you know, we should, we are working towards you know, impacting our community in a way that no nursery has done before. And a few boroughs uh, are excited about it. They are speaking to us and we want to be able to uh, um, do things um, uh, for the country. And uh, we are excited and uh, uh, we are looking forward to um, the end of this pandemic to be able to roll out the things that we have set out to do already. Absolutely. And let's hope that we do start seeing that um, impact on uh, the community and indeed the country sooner rather than later. Um, Gabriel, yeah. it's been um, really insightful and an absolute pleasure having you on the uh, the programme. And I think it would be lovely to revisit this in a few months time just to see how things are indeed panning out um, in that respect. And um, hopefully we start seeing that future impact. So again, thank you so much um, for taking the time to come on to the programme and discuss this uh, with me today for the benefit of the listeners. Thank you, Scott. It's been wonderful. Uh, Coming up next on the programme, we hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. That will be coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Trescothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Trescothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity, and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, Vaughan got injured in the nets, and there was my chance, and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to? see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness, they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any, uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know I think it's easy to forget how 
how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long, and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him, and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point you know, because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing 
a team. Uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there, there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over to the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyoke Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, 
And I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think... I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands: husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you. To explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them. 
um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards, if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though... We're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape, or form, and um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got. A couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say... But whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, it felt so much. Uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so it what, what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important 
step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i will get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.